Hi, everyone. It's Florence Sidhu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, in the age of Corona, we have now moved to a fully remote podcast. You all know me for being around in town, interviewing people at their places of work, really getting to see the real ins and outs of, of my guest's life. But we can't do that now. So I'm very happy and honored to have my guest. He is a multimedia journalist and social entrepreneur who is currently, I believe, in South Africa, but he's also Ghanaian. And his name is Emmanuel Agbeko Gamor. Emmanuel, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us. And tell us a little bit more about you and what you do. Thank you so much, Florence. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. And hi to all your audience. I think podcasts are amazing. I appreciate it a lot. I am currently wrapping up my master's in innovation management at Bits Business School in South Africa. I am a trained multimedia journalist, but I do really love and commit a lot of time towards social intervention. So I have a social enterprise called Already Media, which started about half a decade ago now, shortly after my time at Google, and was really a way to get a lot of young people with skills that were needed in co-working spaces. So first with Impact Hub Accra, iSpace, CC Hub, um, then now with Jimila Hong, Digital Precinct, which is in Bramfontein and Johannesburg and affiliated with Bits University as well. I also love teaching. Um, I think part of at least my professional journey and cycle is realizing that as you take on more responsibilities or you move up in your own professional ladder, the more young energy and more of what I'd call Avengers, so to speak, that you have, the better you're able to replicate and multiply a lot of the impacts that you want to have. So I moved to Mauritius a couple of years ago and taught at Africa Leadership University. And shortly after that, created an edtech startup, which is really focusing on contextualized facilitation, but especially how do we unpack complex models? How do we unpack ecosystems building? How do we unpack going beyond being a single, only hired entrepreneur to being somebody who's part of a community ecosystem that can start to build sustainable business. Um, so yeah, I research digital stuff, teaching. That's basically my, my life these days. Hmm. So a few things you said kind of buzz in my, in my ear. So when you say teaching people how to create sustainable businesses, what exactly does that mean? That's a great question. I think I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Uh, my father, I remember uh, in elementary school, we were all asked to ask our parents, what do your parents do? And my father told me he's a jack of all trades and master of none, uh, which meant he had quite a number of different enterprises going on from refurbishing um, antique cars that he would drive through from Togo and sell in Accra or in Ghana uh, because Togo's import duties were much cheaper for German vehicles and antique cars to water business. And one of the early people to create uh, mass affordable sachet water for the marketplace um, to was. agribusiness and pineapples. Yes, my father was an entrepreneur. And ah, I think that, yeah, 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 it does. <laughs> Apple doesn't <laughs> fall too far from the tree. <laughs> Similarly, my, ma, my mother is. So 
she was in the hotelier business, especially after getting culinary education in the UK. But besides starting her own restaurant, also created a woman's group called The Call of Esther, and which is for her, her own ministry of mentoring women in the States. And she's been doing that for the last decade as well. So I come from kind of parents who are both community impacting and idea generating. And so for me, this last decade and a half has been exciting because everybody um, looks to SMEs and entrepreneurship as the way to spur economies, whether it's been in the United States, but particularly the last narrative around Africa has been, we need entrepreneurs, we need young people to create the jobs that Africa needs, and we need entrepreneurs to be able to innovate for solutions around the continent. And so I've dove deep into it, but what we also realized is ideation, coming up with ideas, coming up with initiatives doesn't necessarily easily translate to sustainable business. Sustainable business are enterprises that are able to live or have a longevity that doesn't just provide for families, but also communities and creates an opportunity for employment. And one of the things that we kind of lack, and there's a map around this, I hope I can find it and share it with you after the podcast, is how many countries have legacy businesses that are still existing? And unfortunately, Ghana has one of the lowest numbers of legacy business on the continent. Um, so Botswana, South Africa, um, if I remember correctly, Ethiopia, there's some countries that have businesses that have been passed on from a generation to another generation. So the point of establishing these businesses isn't just to have a short-lived enterprise. Hopefully, it's to establish these organizations um, that are able not just to generate profit, but also be able to support an ecosystem. There are two big examples that I can think about and share with your audience. One of them that is a very fascinating story is Tata, so Indian-based Tata, Tata Group, and the way that Tata has evolved and to the place where Currently, one of my mentors, the CEO of Tata in South Africa, and he shared with me that about 65 to 75% of Tata's current management came through Tata schools. Some of them were born in Tata hospitals. And so the Tata business has grown from generation to generation, moving from different aspects to automobiles, to trucking, to innovation, to telecoms and others. Uh, but that's a great example of a sustainable business that even uh, in some communities creates more uh, social amenities and interventions with hospitals and schools for the government. Another one, and quite a number of us subscribe to these are uh, kind of like German companies or automobile companies. Um, Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz, but you can also think of Ford because there was an era mm -hmm. of invention in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. And most of these companies have grown to become world-leading brands. Sometimes even the Mercedes brand lately I've seen on like cologne and perfume and on just engineering in itself, right? So businesses that are able to last decades and sustain the community and Ford, the assembly line, but you realize that Henry Ford was, and, and General Motors end up becoming these businesses that hire generations of employees and unlock innovation in a way that communities are built around that. And same with Hershey and the Hershey town or turn up town of Hershey, I think it's in Pennsylvania. And, and the fact that, or same thing with Volkswagen, the largest factory in the world. And so you, that's kind of the framework that I'm at now. How do we um, collaborate our efforts? How do we build things that outlive the initial innovators and founders? And how do we make sure that our businesses are able to serve our communities and be able to hold 
sustainable enterprise. Mm, okay, that's very interesting craft that you have. So, Emmanuel, tell us a little bit more about where you're local and how you came to be there. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, Johannesburg is, is because of that, uh, the opportunity to study. Also, just, I think, on the African map. So, I, I'm, I always say my permanent address is still Accra, Ghana. So, my home, my home is in Accra, and I've kind of moved back since 2012 and kind of moved from my home base um, one to Mauritius, and and at that time it was because it was the first um, African-led, Ghanaian-founded university outside of Ghana that I knew about, that I was passionate about working for. But the reason why I'm here in South Africa is, is twofold. One, because South Africa does present a, a South Sub-Saharan African market that is more mature in industry and financial services. Um, so a good metric for that, maybe for your listeners, is malls. So the number of malls that are built across the continent, most of them, the stores and malls are from South Africa. Game, you can think of some of these, that right. escape me, Stop Right, et cetera, are South African companies. But MTN, largest telco, is also a South African company. And so even before and after the breaking of apartheid, South Africa was able to build an industrial base um, that is far more advanced than any country on sub-Saharan Africa. And so for somebody who's studying industry and innovation, it presents a wonderful opportunity to interrogate for Africa by Africans. And it doesn't necessarily mean Black Africans, because South Africa has a unique context with white South Africans, Afrikaans South Africans. And white South Africans is also like a basket case of Italian, European, British South African. South Africa also does have a, a more mature finance structure their S&P, and they also have, similar to other global North countries, whether it's the States and Germany and Europe, kind of like a ID system tagged onto a credit line system. So for some of our countries where we don't have that same level of national identification tied into financial products and services, this place services great on the continent, kind of interrogation space, learnings and growth for me as well. The other thing which hopefully post-coronavirus and other changes as well, is because of this maturity, a lot of global companies that you see present in our countries, they're headquartered or at least their strategic base is from South Africa to <laughs> the rest of the places. So um, I spoke about Mauritius earlier. Mm -hmm. Most of these companies are registered in Ma Mauritius. <laughs> and then the strategic team or kind of like the Africa presence is either in, in Dubai, UAE or in South Africa. And then they have a foot presence or sprinkling or something in the rest of the African continent. So it's within innovation and management and understanding industry that brought me to South Africa. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you're from Ghana. You're from a certain part of Ghana. Like, did you grow up in Accra? Where did you grow up? Right. Uh, born in Ghana and went to boarding school at Brissac, Legon, and then finished high school in Alexandria, Virginia at West Potomac High. Got a full scholarship to attend the University of Florida. Worked in D.C. for a couple of years and then relocated to Ghana in 2012. My biological father, who's living in Ghana at the time, was not feeling well. So I moved back permanently to take care of him and also to explore entrepreneurial opportunities, as I mentioned earlier. Ghana and on my continent. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, and, and how you are very much like your parents. You know, you are entrepreneur the way they were starting different businesses, trying your hand at many things. So what 
beyond your family ties or within or specifically within your family ties inspires you to keep on and, and, and move in the ways that you're moving in the world right now? Mm, good question. So for context in Alexandria, Virginia, we had a the New Ghanaian newspaper, Sunlight Radio. So I think there's always been a sense of carrying and validating ourselves wherever we've been. And also for other contexts, my dad was in the U.S. in the 80s and moved back, well, 70s and 80s and moved back late 80s, early 90s to Ghana as well. So it's almost like for us, we are, we feel as if we're children of the African soil. And for us, it didn't matter how far away we left home. We always kind of connected with, appreciated and expressed the African culture as best as we can. I think part of what drives what I do now or the lens in which I use to vet opportunities and, and how I is very much this largely skewed on impact. So I, I personally think I'm, I'm blessed um, with a couple of things. I think blessed with a family that was very open on career choice and learnings. So my parents are both not like from a family that either wanted us to go to, to med school or to law school or anything. Neither of them did anyways. Also very big in the community and wanting to know that whatever efforts we have should be able to make those around us, not just close to the family, much better. And I also think that opportunity as a black man, and I think that's part of what I'm grateful for or the lenses around impact. So yes, I think internally our family just being open to impacting the community is a strong tie. But I think also just recognizing and growing up in the United States where the first black president ever, and I think there was a story about a Harvard professor being stopped in front of his house and President Obama having to have coffee to talk it over with the black Harvard professor and the white cop who assumed that that was in his house. That just blew my mind away. I was like, definitely mm. that that is not a validating experience. There's something structurally wrong, not just with American system, but capitalist developed markets. And for me, I, I kind of have a long-term vision plan, just the way my parents were like, economically, we're open to traveling, we're open to you learning new things so that you'd have a better life. I wanted to be able to give a choice or chances to my kids and hopefully my grandkids so they can feel validated without either their genders and or their color of their skin being questioned. And for me, I think that was very important. So that's one of the major reasons why I came home. I think home is where you're appreciated the most. You don't have to explain your cultural nuance or accent or anything to anybody. But it's because of historical backgrounds and others, home is also where it seems as if we're not economically in, uh, as empowered as we can be. So it presented both a challenge and an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a good segue into my global speak question. And so what I ask my guests is to share a word, phrase or saying that has a meaningful part or is a meaningful part of your local existence and why or how you came to value it as global speak. A word, phrase that is meaningful or saying mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or that is a local, which is weird. I think there's so many, there's so many ones. And it's so, I think it's funny because I think in the States, I, I used to actually collect quite a number of Adinkra symbols and Adinkra sayings, right? So Adinkra, Jinyame, Sankofa and others, which are amazing. But it's weird that like lately I've just yeah. been incredibly open to other ones. The, the one that I really, really like, and it's not necessarily Guinean, there might be one that maybe is close to Ghanaian or Yoruba, because I think 
Nigeria, whether it's Igbo or Yoruba, have amazing sayings for all the things, all the days. Um, and I just might yes. not know it. But what I what I do know that I quote fairly often these days, um, it says this. It says that the best time to have planted a tree was 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, the next best time is now. And for me, that's kind of like clarion call and mantra for for one, acknowledging where, where we're at and where I'm at specifically, but also acknowledging the agency I have so that I, I can actively do better on reflection mm-hmm. again. So for me, that's, mm-hmm. that's the local speak that best resonates at this time. I like that. That's the first like real saying that anyone has offered. So that's very valuable. I love that saying, by the way, because I'm a tree hugger. I, <laughs> I mean, so since we're on lockdown, my gardener, he's non-essential. So he may come, he may not come, who knows? So today I decided I am a gardener. I should remember. So I went out and in the morning I swept my whole compound, got all the leaves and noticed that my gardener actually doesn't do such a great job. (laughs) Uh, 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 Watered, Watered all the plants, everything. And I was like, you know, I could actually do this except for that the time, you know? So it's like, now I have to decide, do I want to make that decision to be closer to nature and really do the work or continue to, you know? So, so yeah, it's just really interesting times right now. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the, some of the keywords that you said, because you're in this business. Well, first of all, you're a multimedia journalist. So let's talk a little bit more about your journalism and a little bit more about the company you, you, you um, founded and how that worked how you go about doing that work. Like aside from the student you exploring and teaching, let's hear, let's hear more about your journalism and your social entrepreneurship. Right. So I think for me as well, an undergrad, I did political science, but on my way to to college in high school, I used to write articles for a community newspaper mm-hmm. and towards the, my senior year, I also um, took a couple of photojournalism classes and was a stringer for the Gainesville Alligator. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of, opened up this opportunity for me to learn how to articulate my thoughts and write well, um, but also photojournalism to take pictures and document um, important things. One of the things that struck me in the early days was the idea that newspapers were dying out and digital. So this was kind of like the internet revolution era in the 2000s. Well, 1990s was really when people were making money, but digital and blogging and at that time, I think iPods were starting to become a thing and these disruptions on how we consume information was really starting up. And so for newspaper businesses, the one that I had worked for, they had a transition. And so I built perhaps one of the earlier Guinean newspaper websites for the new Guinean. At the time, got approached by Ghana Web to help them aggregate and put things up as well. And this was 2009, 2010, or 2008, mm-hmm. 2010. Mm-hmm. And it taught me something about newspapers and libraries. One, newspapers are, whether we acknowledge it for what they are or not, are community archival units. So you can go back and look at the outputs of products or newspapers or media and actually follow through landmark instances or happenstances in people's lives from when businesses start, when they advertise, when businesses go bankrupt, to when people are born, to weddings. So newspapers are such an integral part of communities. I think we, we only just appreciate maybe their just-in-time commercial value and advertising, forgetting how much of a community um, kind of grows and 
is documented by the newspaper. And then the extension of that also, because the online wasn't allowed for people to be able to globally take a peek into a community, digital also became a window in which we could tell our stories and we could also validate our experience. And mm-hmm. so I took it upon myself to, to master not just writing, photography, but video production, digital and multimedia and every expression of it. Um, I had the privilege to be an intern at Africa. It was an African-American NGO based in D.C. and helped the digital team raise funds for the Bishop Walker Dinner. But also they had a lot of impact projects happening on the African continent. So it was a great opportunity for me to be able to circle back on Sankofa and have an insight with what was going on on my continent while I was there. Um, when I moved back to Ghana, I had to look for a new job. I had initially applied to a, a bank, but because I didn't do college in Ghana, I didn't have mandatory national service credit. So oh, okay. mm-hmm. I was forced to be entrepreneurial. So while jogging, I created a, a short soundbite for a radio show idea that I had. And I sent emails to City FM, to Global Media Alliance, and Global Media Alliance and YFM responded first. Went for the interview and they wanted, they were excited about me doing business development for the radio station. And so in exchange for airtime, I was working for Global Media Alliance and started the Empower Show with YF, on YFM with Ama Abwaje, which would go right. on later on to become highlighted by Google Africa Connected. And then I'd get asked to join the Google team in Ghana to work on YouTube projects. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. So that's how we met. Like we met. Yeah. I was a guest on your show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Absolutely. from Google, then you had the hub. And so that's where we actually interacted. Excellent. Right. So at Google, I had the chance to teach kind of businesses. So the, the business strategy on the Google end was getting a lot of diverse content, getting folks to advertise. So partner management, but also content management. And on the partner management side, was to get folks who would spend quite a bit of money on radio and television to think about digital as well. Well, now that we're, we're home and coronavirus and everybody's watching online platforms, Hulu, Google, YouTube, it makes so much sense. But mm-hmm. about half a decade to a decade ago, it was quite difficult to convince people that online advertising was the way to go. But the benefits of analytics was helpful. I particularly enjoyed training content creators. So social enterprise, folks that had previously been on my radio show to say that, hey, it was great for you to be on radio and TV for the local audience, but for your own archival purposes and to be able to share to a global audience, you should look at being able to tell your stories via video on YouTube as well. And so I was able to convince my boss and the team to create YouTube content creator huddles and get some funding around that. And so I was able to host content model huddles at iSpace. And then A step further was when the Broadcasting Board of Governors and Voice of America Radio, they were looking for a director for one of their very first digital innovation hubs on the continent, Um, a way for folks to practice like new media, what are the ways that we can empower journalists using digital tools. And the idea was for the BBG Broadcasting Board of Governors in the United States that produces Voice of America Radio and other assets to replicate with innovation centers and digital innovators slash journalists and creating this new wave of journalism that particularly empowers storytelling on the continent. So that's mm-hmm. how I ended up at Impact Hub Accra um, and being okay. the director for a couple of years. Oh, okay, right, right, right. And then from there you went to Mauritius and then from there you were in South Africa. 
Absolutely. Right. So tell us a little bit more about the global global shape shapers, because that was a really high impact, really interesting um, part of your work. Right. <laughs> Sometimes I actually forget and then you remind me. But yeah, so, <laughs> and uh, I am still engaged, but more on the global on the HQ level. But Global Shapers started off with an invitation from Fred Molly Dagbet. I think he had created this very interesting campaign. He was a shoemaker and he created these beads. And one of the campaigns for the beads, the gold was for the reward and the black was for the hard work. And it resonated a lot with Guineans locally and abroad. And so I purchased one of them. Say that that again, because you kind of broke up, but the beats, because that was a huge campaign or basically, or a huge thing, like, because everyone was wearing them. So tell us, say that again. Who was the gentleman that you worked with? So Fred Mowley Dagbe. Fred Mowley. Okay. Yes. Dagbe. Yeah. Dagbe. And he created Heal the World. And Heal the world. Yes, a shoemaker, but he had accessories as well. And the bead that resonated um, was the black and gold beads. The black was for the hard work and the gold was for the reward. And it resonated mm-hmm. with some of us in the diaspora as well. So I remember right after college, I reached out to him and shipped, bought and he shipped a, my own pair to the United States for me. So when I came back to Ghana, he actually reached out to me and said, hey, I followed your work at the New Ghanaian. I think you are you have a, a specific set of skills, but there's this group of people who are trying to make an impact in the community. Are you interested? And at the time, my dad was not feeling well, so I was a bit hesitant in joining. But I also realized that I personally needed an outlet beyond finding work, being at the radio at odd hours and recording until um, midnight on Sundays and doing business development on weekdays, an outlet that would two things help me do things that I'm passionate about, which was community work with a group of people. So then I didn't feel like the burden of responsibility was just on me. Um, and to connect with other like-minded young people as well, who were either doing great things locally or were like me, had come back home and were looking to do even greater things um, for our local community at home. So I started off joining the Global Shapers Accra Hub regular member, then photographer for almost all the discourses, then having enough confidence to pitch my own projects and being project lead on some of them, then became becoming curator as well and kind of transforming the hub. Because I was campus involvement director in college, I, I had a lot of leadership and organizational leadership skills that I was able to showcase in one leading their craft hub, generating new members, creating the membership exciting, and to spearheading a lot of local flagship programs that became highlighted globally within the global shaper community. And so while I was at Google, I was invited to Cape Town to speak on data and digital transformation and its impact on the continent. And then I was also invited to Davos as one of 50 global shapers out of 8,000 globally, and one of, I think, four or five from the African continent that were selected, all expenses paid. And when I was at Davos, I was also selected to speak on the panel on the single African markets or African continental free trade agreement. And that led to my continuous engagement in using not just the global shapers, but communities and world economic forums, such as YGLs and others, to explore this this thinking and framework of sustainable businesses, right? Mm-hmm. What what actually allows us to have 
either the infrastructure that makes us be able to thrive as entrepreneurs or what are the policy recommendations that we need to advocate for so that individual efforts don't just die and expire in, in hard and difficult conditions. So my Global Shaper experience started from an outlet for impact, grew into a space for me to stretch and expand some of the leadership skills and tools and experiences I had in college, then extended it to being a way for me to rally and kind of get a, as many other young people who have energy and aligned with community impact as possible. And then has transitioned into helping me connect globally with um, quite a, a good number of people. And so last year I was invited to be the co-chair for the Impact and Knowledge um, Council on, on, on the board for Shapers globally. And it's been mm-hmm. a good learning experience. It's also helped me share some of what I know on digital and facilitation and online learning. I do teach digital reputation management and digital online persona for University of Stellenbosch executive education as a part-time faculty. So I've been able to bring some of those skills within the Shaper community on webinars and and sharing and um, ways of us learning from each other within our communities as well. Mm, Okay. So that's all very interesting, particularly the panel that you mentioned that you were taking a part of, because you said, I wanted to, I wrote down capitalism because, you know, that's what kind of drove you out of the U.S. And then now a lot of what you're doing is figuring out how to rethink it and restructure it and kind of blow it out the water for Africa. So in all of what you're saying, you know, one of the things that underlines all of this is policies. Like my background is in um, urban policy and economics. And what I feel like on the level of actually activating is where you are and you're doing all these things to encourage people to be able to be able to take advantage of, of whatever policy create, but how do we now position these people or whomever to start to really influence policy and take part in that space, not just the business space, but the policy space? Have you thought a lot about that? Well, yeah, I think one of the things concurrently um, every year there's a Shaper conference. I think this year because of Corona, it's been postponed. But one of the, the more impactful ones was three years ago, if I, my memory serves me right, we had one in Addis Ababa or Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and we visited the African Union. And I was particularly keen to learn a bit about the Agenda 2063 and to find out what young people's engagement has been, can be, will be, and to understand, first of all, what policy education looks like on our part of the continent, mm-hmm. and two, the diffusion of both the potential and the consequences of that policy. So it's one thing for for folks who are already kind of predisposed to policy, those who wrote it, those who write it, to put it out there. It's another thing for it to be translated for entrepreneurs, business folks to understand which ways to maximize. And the other part is also then to be empowered to let the policy deliver on what its promise is. Mm-hmm. And so the, that was a, it was a bit of a frustrating journey for me because obviously when, when we meet as global shapers, these are some of the most 
impactful, driven, willing to add to their already, like whatever professional and family responsibilities, this idea of impacting positively our communities. And then the, the bottleneck was, oh, wait, there are these dreams that people have had or continue to have our continent. And one, the stakeholder that was not consulted was us young people. So we didn't help write mm-hmm. to, to Agenda 2063. Yes, there was an, a youth part of it, which was a small group of people who typically are affiliated with the AU anyways, but it wasn't a, a sampling that was truly representative of opinions. We were, I think, fairly largely a random sampling from almost every city on the continent. But the what, what the intersection was, was that we had, ris- we had raised our hands to be volunteers for Global Shapers and Impact. And 90 to... 95% of us didn't know about the youth charter and its place in 2063. And the worst part was 90% of us didn't know what we could do to ensure it, even if it was being shared as positively prescriptive for us. Right. So that that also kind of made me buckle down a little bit. And with my social enterprise, which initially was really media because it was focused on me sharing multimedia skills, has, has evolved a little bit into rallying and cross-promoting and engaging young people in different facilitated groups and continued groups outside and within the Global Shaper Network for us to also future cast. Because I think that, like I mentioned earlier, policy needs to be not just passed or not just written down, but it needs to be executed by politicians, but also by citizens and each party or stakeholder keeping each other accountable. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's been a very interesting, eye-opening, fascinating thing for me to see. And I think we're, we're so far behind because these conversations happen in silos. And outside of conferences, it's very difficult to see lots of expressions of translated impact of policy and translated responsibility of citizens when this policy is passed in the first place. Right, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the pain of it all. So I'm, I'm, I thank you for your thoughts on that because I, I absolutely agree. I see that not only where the youth agenda is, but I think where sector agendas are, where everything is. So I think we have some real digging and opening and receding to do around a lot of those a lot of those efforts which leads me to my mindset hack question so here's where i ask what your favorite or innovative mindset hack is so it's something that you can imagine something that exists or something that you know of and practice oh cool i there's um a quote that i got recently a friend of mine listened to so i started a podcast Kind of like it's an alternative way to ah, yes. yeah, also share my journey and interrogation of other people figuring out ecosystems. But also, like I think, to create empathy so that folks in, in a large part, at least within the demographic I care about now, and I, and I care about everybody, but I'm specifically more endearing towards young people, that you know that you're not mm-hmm. isolated in some of the challenges that we face. So because I've traveled 20 plus countries on the continents, Europe and the United States, even within these developed, maybe quote unquote, great countries, you do find pockets of inequity, pockets of spaces where you mentioned um, capitalism, uh, patriarchy, privilege is given to others and it's not it's not made in a fair space. And I think my the biggest hack that I've seen and I've followed it is just identifying and listening to podcasts. So the first episode of my my podcast, a good friend of mine, 
when she used to work for the WNDA, she listened and she gave really awesome critical constructive feedback. And she said, my podcast reminded her of Michael Barbaro from The Daily, the New York Times' podcast, The Daily, uh, which is an award-winning podcast. And so I hadn't really listened to it. But in an interview with Kara Swisher, who I listened to on the Vox, and and she typically does tech stuff, Michael Barbaro said that he thinks, or and I quote, I think podcasts are all about empathetic listening and generally podcasts engender understanding and humanity. And Mm -hmm. I realized... Part of why I like podcasts is you can actually delve into some of the things that people say more contextually and over time without it having to have a leading line, headline, catchy phrase. And because I know what that means in order to catch an audience's attention and and how like news reports are received versus the content, it's still difficult for people to read either like the report on collusion between Trump and, and Russia or to read the Africa Continental Free Trade Full Agreement. Even those of us researching, we read through it and skim it, but it's not made for general reading. But in some ways, I think podcasts are able to to bridge the gap a little bit and allow you to to delve into topics in an interesting way, but also to empathize with the guest audience and the perspective that's being presented. I love that. So first of all, hooray for podcasts. I love that. And tell us again, your podcast, where we can find it. I'll put it in the show notes as well. But yes, please toot your own horn there. Thank you so much. Um, mm-hmm. So it's titled Unpacking Africa. And mm-hmm. it's it's on anchor, anchor.com forward slash 4IR Africa. They've been able to redistribute it on other platforms. It's barely a week old, actually, which is crazy for me. Um, no problem. <laughs> but yeah, it's a lot of positive feedback. And so Spotify, Anchor, I think on three or four other platforms in a week or so, it would be on Google Podcasts and uh, Apple iTunes. And I think I've been able to get a few different, like I tap into the Global Shaper Network a bit mm-hmm. so that I can get multiple voices on a similar topic. And hopefully we can compare what's similar, but also just learn from what's different as well. Yeah, I love it. Unpacking Africa, folks. So, Emmanuel, this has been a great conversation, and I am going to invite you back to some one of my fireside conversations, which I'm going to start transitioning to as well, just to kind of get people to have conversations about solutions, because we need a lot of them now. So before that, I want to ask you one of my kind of just let's know more about my guest questions and you seem like you're fairly intellectual. So what would you say, what are you reading nowadays? Oh, that's a great question. I, and one of the things that's fascinating, because a friend of mine was asking that question, and I realized these days I read like little snippets. So I'm in the mm. phase where I still have like research articles and things to read for thesis. So I'm just like, ugh. But I've been able to get back into reading thanks to this book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Mm. And it's a really great kind of series of exercises. And she has a powerful quote in there that says that creativity brings or our creativity brings us closer to God. And it's mm-hmm. she, she it's kind of like a culmination of various exercises that she gives to folks that have artist block, writer's block, creativity block, whatever you may call it. Mm-hmm. And it's been something that I, you know, like when you have like a good, you're probably vegetarian, but a good meal. So I was going to say mm-hmm. a chicken bone, like when you have a good meal, whatever, whatever it is, that's 
like it settles on your your taste buds you say yes. that right yeah. you don't want to rush you don't want to ah you want to nah. mm. so this is one of those <laughs> books where like i actually have a journal and i read and get quotes and i go back and i reference so it's, it's not something that i'm in a rush to finish or skim through or see uh-huh. the, the end cover yes. but yeah the artist way by julie cameron okay thank you for that that will be in the show notes folks and any final thoughts for our audience today, Manuel? Yeah, I think part of me is, is accepting reality, but it's also so surreal that the world economies have, by and large, slowed down to some type of standstill, right? And mm-hmm. I think it's a great opportunity for us, and it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, to start to future cast. I think it took a while for me to realize that the way we live, how we live, these were all imagined and and determined by thinkers and doers and that we almost take it for granted that the left side of the road or the right side of the road were like arbitrary then made to become meaningful decisions but there were people decisions so we're in a unique space i think that and as much as we seem to have come so much further in building communities and nation states and businesses we have so much room to fix, to correct, to dream, and future cast. So for all your listeners out there, there's no dream or idea that you have that is either foolish or not relevant. A lot of the foolish people's dreams that were just consistent are what we take for granted as fact. So whoever you are, wherever you are at, whatever your inclinations are, do you future cast? Because I think a more inclusive world is a better world for us and the more of us that share and articulate the future that we want the better it's going to be for our grandchildren because then they would be coming into a world that responds to diversity and the mic dropped (laughs) thank you daniel that was a great closing thought i really appreciate it i appreciate your time i appreciate you so happy studies this is your last semester i think right Right. So my last semester was last year. I am just okay. putting together the thesis, um, which has okay. been f- interesting because it's supposed to be around the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. And now that we won't be allowed to travel, trade and commerce might be reimagined. But yes, fingers crossed on unwrapping that up this year. Okay. So- well, congratulations on that in advance. All right, folks. You have been listening to Global Citizens with Florence Adu. And you know that you can catch us every Tuesday with a new episode on GlocalCitizensPod.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks again and bye for now.